verses 27 through 38. And this uh, section of scripture is titled, Peter Confesses Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So today we are going to continue with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. As we have said many times, we chose all those words very carefully. Please think about them. And the eight elements are listed in Roman numeral one for you on your outline. Hopefully everyone has an outline. And we are at uh, continuing at ro- uh, element number five which is that Jesus Christ is the only mediator or the only bridge. What we emphasize in the first four elements is uh, that the gap between God and us is much greater than moderns know. We think we just need, like I love the Blues Brothers movie where the uh, mean old nun or whatever that's wrapping him on the knuckles tells Jake and Elwood, you boys need a little churching up. And uh, we think we need just a little churching up, like I need to get to church, or I need some counseling, or I need some self-help books, or I just need to turn over a new leaf, or I just need to try a little harder. You need to be completely recreated. I need to be completely recreated. We need to become completely new people. And we cannot do anything in ourselves to, to surmount our three insurmountable enemies of our own sin nature, Satan and his demons, or the world system. We cannot overcome anything apart from the grace of God. And so uh, what we're looking at in element five is Jesus Christ, the mediator. First Timothy 2, uh, 3 through 6 says, talks about God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So these verses themselves tell us that Jesus is God our Savior and he's a man. 
And so we looked at, uh, for the first few weeks on Element 5, we looked at the I am sayings of Jesus when he declared his deity. We looked at the, the uh, um, didactic teachings about Jesus being deity. We looked at the teachings about Jesus being fully human. Uh, we looked at that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We looked at that he was the pattern for all of life and ministry. If you want to know a model human being, study the Gospels, study the Gospels, study the Gospels, study the Gospels, and you will gradually become who you were meant to be. And uh, we looked at his wilderness temptation. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been starting to look at Jesus' public ministry. We did a week on the declarations he made, both in the synagogue and elsewhere. Then we did a, a week or so on disciple-making. We didn't finish that one. I'm not going to finish that one. You have the notes. And anyone who's been around here for a while knows that we teach that discipleship needs to be informational, formational, and impartational. And if you don't have a full handle on that, one thing I would consider having you do is just study Jesus's relationship to Peter from uh, the, the early parts of the Gospels all the way through Peter's epistles, and especially some of Jesus's or Peter's encounters with Jesus in the Book of Acts, such as Acts chapter ten and so forth. So look at look at how Jesus not only informed Peter but how he imparted things to Peter, how he formed Peter. And look at the same with Joshua and Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Timothy, Titus, etc. And uh, uh, that's something you should look for when you're reading your Bible. All right, today we are going to uh, get into more about the ministry of Jesus. Two preliminary reminders that, that there's a great magnitude to his ministry. We could, we could do a series on this for the rest of your life. According to John 21, 25, he said that many other things Jesus did, and I suppose if they were all written down, not even the world itself could contain the books. It's a pretty awesome endorsement, don't you think? Uh, um, so if we wanted to study the ministry of Jesus for the rest of our lives, we could. And I would just encourage you, last, last uh, Christmas, I like to read a lot of books over the Christmas break, and I... The best one I read was by a guy named N.T. Wright, or also known as Tom Wright sometimes. And uh, he, it, it was a 350-page study of the Gospels called How, How Jesus Became King. And one, in it, he made this a statement that a, a lifelong study and restudy and restudy and restudy and reflection and meditation and thinking about and is of the Gospels is well worth it. I would, in fact, say there's nothing richer you could do in life. It's amazing the things people spend their time on today, which have very little ROI, uh, return on investment. Video games, television, movies, shopping, uh, what have you. There, there, You will have eternal, amazing, awesome return on investment if you meditate on Jesus. That's why Hebrews 3.1 says to do what we're doing in this part of the series, consider Jesus, think about Jesus, meditate on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Later in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, he says, consider Jesus, uh, the author and finisher of our faith. 
Now, we, I just also want to remind us that we did a whole message on how Jesus is the principal pattern. If you're, if you, uh, we are trying to be a missional community. All the more reason we need to study what Jesus did with the 12, what Jesus did with the masses, what the ministry of Jesus is. He intended everything he did to be the model for what the church should look like. You know, I meet Christians all the time who say, well, gee, I've never seen a demon cast out, nor have I cast one out. And I say, have you ever read the Gospels? Because over 25% of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons. And he made it clear that, that, that his disciples would do that. He didn't say they would do that uh, in backward times until evolutionary progress helped us understand that all that was stupid. <laughs> he didn't say that. He just said, in my name, they'll cast out demons. Uh, you need to not only have that done for you, you need to learn how to do it for others. Have you ever prayed for people to be healed? So forth. Have you ever spoken an anointed word as an unction of the Holy Spirit? Well, study Jesus, study his ministry model, and so forth. So, Jason read us Mark's version of, the, of Max, Matthew 6, 13 through 19. But what I want to get into today in terms of the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus was building a covenantal family or a covenantal church, a covenantal community. In uh, the Tuesday night Bible study, which is finally starting to catch on that some people are starting to come to, even though they don't go to right state, more and more people are doing that because I really, really want everyone in this church to have that foundation of what we're teaching there. We've been talking about the church, and we spent uh, three weeks on just word pictures of the church, and we're going to spend one more week on the word pictures of the church just in the book of Ephesians, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the church itself is a word picture of the church. The church comes from the word ecclesia, and it means the called out assembly. It was a word used in the ancient Greek city-states called the police, not police. <laughs> and uh, uh, it meant all those who were called into the open market to govern the city together. Greece being the birthplace of democracy. And all, all the free, of course, they didn't have uh, some of the things we have in modern times. It was at that time, it was all the free males who owned property who were who were called to uh, to vote and so forth. But uh, still, that was radical for its time. So uh, Jesus is borrowing that word, which the Old Testament version of the scriptures called the Septuagint, which happened after Alexander the Great conquered. Uh, the Mediterranean world before long before the Romans, a Greek version of the of the Hebrew scriptures was written called the Septuagint. And one of the things you need to know about the New Testament is that both Jesus and the apostles quote from the Hebrew Masoretic text at times, and they quote from the Septuagint, the Greek text at times, and they quote in as if both of them have equal authority. And that's why some of the quotes that you read in the New Testament. Don't come over perfectly from your, from your Old Testament Bible because um, your Old Testament Bible is based on the Hebrew Masoretic text. 
So occasionally you'll run into to a quote that doesn't come over exactly right because it's not quoted from the Hebrew, it's quoted from the Greek. And it's usually a minor nuance, of course. But uh, So uh, in this passage, we're going to look at this a little bit in detail because uh, today because there's only two places in the, in the Gospels where Jesus says, I will build my church, or uses the word church at all. And he's saying that in contradistinction to the fact that the Septuagint, whenever it was talking about the congregation of Israel, the people of God that had been formed under Moses in the, in the Exodus and so forth and had gone, the rest of the New Testament is about that covenant people, or the rest of the Old Testament, I, should, should, I think I said New Testament. Old Testament is about that covenant people. And whenever it's talking about that congregation, the Septuagint version uses ecclesia, or my church, Moses' church. So Jesus is saying uh, what he's doing in Matthew is it's a covenant lawsuit against Israel, and he's making the case that I'm done with Israel. They have killed one prophet after another, and finally they're going to kill the son. They have honored me with their lips, they claim to be Bible-believing Christians, but they don't live accordingly. They are far from obedience to God, and so forth. And I've had it, and I'm taking away the kingdom from them, and I'm going to give it to a new nation that produces the fruit. And every metaphor, there's this whole doctrine today called dispensationalism, which is crazy, but uh, we need to respect it because, frankly, it's the majority among Bible-believing Christians. And so um, they actually think that it, the things pertaining to Israel and the people of the God in the Old Testament don't pertain to the church and the people of God in the New Testament, and that there will be a physical restoration of Israel and that they'll be saved by works doing temple sacrifices if Jesus never had to come. And it borders on heresy, actually. And uh, because it negates the absolute essential of no one can come to the Father but through Jesus. And so there would be no need for the gospel if somebody could be saved by works. No one was ever saved by works under the old covenant or the new. The old covenant saints that were saved were saved by faith in the, in the character of God and in the promises of God and his word and the coming of their atonement and the exchange that they made in their life with the life of God. We're saved as a past event in the accomplished atonement. That's the only difference. No one was ever saved by performance-based works. You could never. So Jesus here is saying, I will build my church. Now, these scriptures have uh, three interpretations, uh, and I, uh, all of you know two of them. But all three are actually correct. And so I'm going to give you one today that you don't know. Now, the one you, the two you know is the weakest one is the Protestant interpretation, which basically says that Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros, which means a small stone, and upon this Petra, which means a rock, I will build my church. Many commentators who disagree with that interpretation say Jesus probably would have used the word lithos, which means a large bedrock, had he, but it would have destroyed the play on words. So he's saying, you are P Peter, 
a small stone, and upon this large stone I'll build my church. So many who have that interpretation would say, uh, and it's exegetically it works fine, and it's a valid interpretation, that he's saying the, the rock that he's talking about is the revelation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because no one comes in to the people of God except by that revelation. When you begin to, to hear his voice, Jesus said, a time will come when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear it will live. He's not talking about physically dead. He's talking about spiritually dead people being able to sense the presence of God, being able to read the scriptures and sense communion with God and fellowship with God. People who've been born again and know you're the Christ. And their life begins to change in radical ways because that new life that's come into their spirit through the living, abiding word of God. And all of a sudden, they stop changing. They stop liking their sins. One of my most embarrassing moments was my senior year in high school. God was dealing with me, and I was starting to read the Bible, and I knew I had to choose between heaven and hell and Jesus and everything. But I was still like a total partier, and I hadn't told any of my friends yet. And I'm being convicted by God, and I was kind of, it took about six months to fully get going. But uh, during that process, a few weeks before graduation, I was talking to one of my friends, and I said, are you going to go to all the graduation parties? And he goes, of course I'm going to go. They'll be great, man. Everybody be getting drunk and high and getting laid and, you know, all the things we do at parties. And uh, of course I'm going to go. And I said, I don't know if I'm going to go. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, there's going to be a lot of sin in there. And then I said, what? <laughs> like, I'm like, did I say that? Just forget that. I'm like, I don't even know why I said that. <laughs> like, oh, my God. You know, because God was starting to change me. And I actually, you know, like stayed home with my parents on graduation night, which thrilled them to no end because I was always out of there in five minutes to go party, you know. But uh, I said, you know, my parents had a lot to do with my uh, being able to graduate. Maybe I'll just hang out and eat cake or something and do something they would be happy with for a while. I don't know how long that lasted, but uh, I wasn't totally surrendered yet. But um, God starts to change you. I remember a little, you know, a few months later after I had quit drugs and and I was growing in the Lord and I, one night I was wrestling with, you know, different integrity in my heart and sin. And and I, I remember I turned off the light and I slid down on their covers and I cried out to God, Lord, I just want you to make me new. I want to do what's right. And I actually sat back up and turned on the light because I said, I prayed that? Like, I want to do what's right? I just want to please you? I was like... That was never on my agenda before. <laughs> you know, I never put that in my daytime or like try to please God and do what's right. I mean, that was not what I was uh, had in mind before he changed me. And I hope you have the same testimony. So that testimony is that the, the fountain, the rock of the church is when you are brought to a place where you say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And it begins to consume your whole being. It begins to be the passion that you're about. And someone calls you and says, what are you doing? And you say, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, what? Okay, so that's a valid interpretation. Another valid interpretation of I will build my church is he, Jesus is saying, you're Peter, 
And upon the rock of the apostles, I will build my church. Now, a lot of Protestants have held out for the first one, even though it's weaker. This is actually a stronger exegesis because they don't realize that the idea that that gave uh, Peter some special significance uh, where he was, you know, uh, sinless and uh, could speak in perfect words and so forth, that idea didn't emerge for several centuries. Okay, so in, in the New Testament... In Acts chapter 18, after Peter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18, after Peter goes to Cornelius in the Gentiles' house, the brethren took issues with him. Now, in this case, Peter was right, and so he ended up rebuking them in the end about having gone to Cornelius' house. But the fact is, they didn't, there was no idea. The idea was that the apostles were just first among equals how we treat our leadership today. We have a plurality of leaders, and I'm the primary leader, the senior pastor, and I'm kind of the first among equal guys. But I can't just do what I want. I got to do what they tell me, right? So later, Paul says in Galatians that he rebuked Peter openly because prior to the coming of some men from James, Peter, interpreting the gospel correctly, was eating with the Gentiles all the time. And once a bunch of Jewish guys came, he stopped eating with the Gentiles and withdrew and and went into hypocrisy and started eating with the Jews only, as was the Jewish practice. And so Paul says, I had to rebuke him to his face. So believe me, this idea uh, doesn't necessitate a doctrine of the papacy, which everyone is aghast at, uh, maybe too much so. Uh, but in any case, it doesn't necessitate at all. He's saying that you are Peter, and upon the rock of the apostles, and if you go through the scriptures I've listed here, I have a, on your outline at the bottom of the page, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, etc. Read those all for yourself, and you'll see that some of them call Jesus the cornerstone, some call the apostles the cornerstone, Uh, They mix metaphors all throughout. But the truth is, Jesus said that I will send you prophets and apostles, some of whom you'll persecute. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on them, he will lead them and guide them in all to the truth. He said in John 14, 26, when the helper of the Holy Spirit comes, he will cause you to remember all that I've said to you so that they accurately recorded the Gospels and so forth. So the the church is built on on the foundation stone of Christ and his apostles. That's, that's fine. But let me give you a third explanation of this uh, verse that uh, I hope I can get through and still get through the rest of the outline because this is kind of important. All right. So in Matthew 16, 13 through 19, plus the passage that Jason read to us, Mark 8, 27 through 38, we see Jesus take the 12 disciples purposely to Caesarea Philippi. Now, to the modern casual reader, it almost seems like Jesus just took the disciples down the street somewhere. So they just went to another place. But I hope you will remember my, uh, over, I think it was over Christmas time last year, or thereabouts, we were going, uh, we did a, a few messages called on, on symbol, biblical word pictures and symbolism, because I was trying to help a couple newer, newer people in the church who were t- asking me, how could I get more out of the Old Testament? So we did a little series about 
biblical imagery and how to read the Old Testament better and how to see Christ in the Old Testament. And I did a couple messages called Mountains and Matthew. Remember that? And so Matthew has Jesus do every important thing at a mountain. And so Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is the base of Mount Hermon. Okay? And that's intentional. It's one of two times that I know of, there might be one or two others I might be missing, where Jesus actually takes the disciples out of Israel. And it's the only time he ever took them to any place like this. He took them to Sin City. So what was at the base of Mount Hermon was a, was a series of shrines. By the way, it was a 16.2-mile trip or something, which a very healthy person can walk about 20 miles a day. And if you're, you're kind of like the, the, uh, the settlers who went west, because, of course, you get in pretty good shape, they, they tried to make 20 miles a day because most of them were walking alongside the wagons. And so uh, this is a two-day trip. This is like, you know, like road trip overnight. <laughs> they brought their tents and their sleeping bags. They invited John Gray. <laughs> and uh, they had their Coleman stoves and everything. Bob Timer would have been happy. Okay, so, no, I don't know about all that. But uh, <laughs> don't know if Coleman stoves were quite invented yet. But uh, they didn't just go down the roads. He's, he's going to an intentional place. Now, Caesarea Philippi is what today is, call, is called Benias, and it's what you hear in the news all the time. You hear all about the Golan Heights all the time because it's this kind of border uh, place where lots of rockets are fired back and forth between Lebanon and Israel all the time, right? It's the northernmost part of Israel today called the Golan Heights, but it was actually outside of Galilee in, in, uh, in those days, and it was, but it was part of Herod's domain, and Herod had built a shrine to the emperor and changed the name of it uh, from, I think it was called Pan or something like that before. And he changed the name of it to Caesarea Philippi in 2 BC as uh, to, to honor the emperor Caesar. And because the shrine became a place of the Roman cult of emperor worship. But long before that, going back to the days after Alexander the Great had conquered all the way to what's India today, all of, nor of what's Greece and Turkey today, Israel, Egypt, and northern Africa to about Libya or so, after he died, he, he did all that in less than 10 years. He could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his own passions. He died of syphilis at the age of 30 because he was a sexual freak. And... Uh, he wasn't, uh, not in the, someone just laughed because I guess that's a modern term, right? I forgot about that. He was whacked out. Uh, <laughs> whatever you want to say. He had some lust issues. Let's just say that. Uh, put it in, so uh, he died. And after he died, his empire was um, divided by, into four generals, took, each, took part of it and fought with each other and tried to consolidate their power for a generation or so. One, and uh, in, if you study the intertestament period, you'll come across the name of two of those generals and two of those areas. One is the Seleucids and one is the Ptolemies. And um, 
This was actually, uh, under the time of the Ptolemies, this actually became the center of pan worship. There was a large rock there, or cliff, that was huge, and along it had all these shrines. But the most important shrine was the shrine to the god Pan. Now, Pan was what's called a satyr, or satyr, or in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the fawn, half goat, half man, right? And so this was the center of Pan worship, or fawn worship. And the word fawn actually comes from the Greek for Pan. So um, it was a center of pagan worship. Around it were naked statues of women uh, as nymphs who were servants of Pan. Um, there was a huge cave at the base of the mountain, and the, the rock itself was called the Rock of the Gods. The cave was called the Gates of Hades. Because it was thought that the, the god uh, Baal entered and left Hades wherever springs of water came out of the ground. If you've ever been to Yellow Springs, there's water. It just comes right out of the ground. It's pretty cool. I've been there many times. And uh, um, wherever water came out of the ground like that, actually, I forget when, and then sometime in the 19th century, there was an earthquake, so now the water just kind of seeps from different places. But up until then, the water came from a specific hole out of a specific cave, and that place was called the Gates of Hades because it was thought that Baal came in and out there, and it was a center of Baal worship. So besides these, uh, this statue to fawn and all these naked nymphs, there was erect penises or phalluses as part of their pagan worship. It was a place of what, pornography. And what went on in the pagan worship was they had sex with goats in the open. All over, and all sorts of lewd and disgusting acts were going on all the time. It was, it was much wicked, more wicked than, than Las Vegas or New Orleans or San Francisco or Miami or any of the cities in our country known for their wickedness, Los Angeles and so forth. You know, today, if somebody told me, uh, I, I unfortunately had to go to Las Vegas on business for some trade shows. It's a center of trade shows. And I, oh, it was, it's horrible. It's disgusting. If someone in our church said they were going to Las Vegas, I would just look at them and go like, why would you want to do that? Are you kidding me? Not only, pornography is not only legal, but prostitution is legal. And you know how you can go downtown and you can get free newspapers that are home buying guides and, uh, and auto free, you know, for autos that are for sale and employment ones and so forth. And they have boxes for each of those. They have boxes of all those with the ads from the prostitutes. And girls go to college at UNLV so they can work their way through college as prostitutes. Believe me, it's a, it is a disgusting place through and through, not a place a Christian should want to go. And this place was well known among the Jews, 
And both the Pharisees and Sadducees taught that no godly person would ever want to go to Caesarea Philippi. And this is exactly where Jesus took his disciples to, to, tell, to ask them, who do you say that I am? Who do the people say I am? Some say you're Moses, some say Elijah, da, da, da. but who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ. And he says, thou art Peter. And then he goes, upon this rock. So another interpretation is, upon this rock of, called the gates of Hades, I will build my church. Because what he was about to send them in to do was conquer the pagan world in the name of Jesus Christ. And they went to all the centers of Diana worship and Apollo worship and Hermes worship and all sorts of pagan mystery cults where they had all kinds of drugs and sexual rites. And uh, the mystery cults always involved mood-altering drugs, you know, such as marijuana is today for most people, all sorts of opium and different things, because it was thought that when you alter your mood, you can get filled with the spirits more. They even call the hard alcohol spirits, because if you drink enough, you'll get some spirits. And, uh, and you cannot smoke weed and these kinds of things without getting demonic spirits. It just can't be done. So um, it's the opposite of spending time with God. It's devotional time to pagan deities. It's the worship of demons. It's all that there can be said for it. So Jesus takes them right there because he's trying to say, you are about to attack the gates of Hades. And you are about to go and liberate the passengers. And then Jesus starts talking about the cost of being a disciple. But what it says in Mark's version, the reason I had Jason read Mark's version, is in Matthew's version, it says he called his disciples to himself because Mark, Matthew was focusing on reaching the Jews. Luke and Mark are more focused on, Mark is a mixture, Luke is very focused on reaching the Gentiles. But in Mark's version, it says that he called his disciples and the crowds. Now, everywhere else in the gospel that you're reading about Jesus calling the crowds to himself and teaching them and feeding them and so forth, he's calling Jewish crowds who go to synagogue, who don't commit adultery, who live by the law, who honor the one true God and so forth. But in this particular case, he called a bunch of pagans who were worshiping all sorts of idols and living in disgusting and bizarre ways, and he began to teach them the cost of being his follower. And he says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. No one can follow me unless he takes up his cross and denies himself and follows me. Um... He says, uh, you know, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, he's talking about the pan worshipers. Peter later calls Israel the sinful and adulterous generation in Acts 2. But he's talking about the pan worshipers in this context. 
And he's saying, if you're ashamed of me and my word, then I'll be ashamed of you. It's amazing how many Christians in our country actually have real issues with being afraid to witness boldly. I don't know if I could ever go table to table and share the gospel. We don't live in a country where you're going to get shot for it. The worst you're going to face is they're not going to like you very much. Oh, oh, that hurts. Oh, oh, they didn't like me very much. Are you kidding me? Holy cow. Don't you get that blessed are you if they don't like you very much? Woe are you if they like you very much, Jesus said. If you're popular and sell a lot of CDs and whatever, woe are you. If you're really popular in this time period, in this generation, that's problematic. To say the least, Jesus is saying. So that's an important thing to understand. Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church, and my church is going to live right in the world, and it's going to close its gates by making it covenant community, and they're going to live a certain way, and so forth. And just like the monks did to civilize Europe in the second, third, and fourth generation, I had someone who really understands this stuff, someone you, some of you know named Michelle Caldwell, called me just a week or two ago and said, I love what you're doing. She's gotten to know John Bradbury, and so she's like, you guys are setting up this alternate city in the city and you're discipling people out of the worldliness and out of the city's values and into the kingdom's values and so forth and you're setting it up as a fortress to reach out and save people from. That's exactly what Jesus is saying his church would do. First, we got to get Egypt out of you so you can get Egypt out of them. You can only take people as far as you've gone yourself. Don't be shy of correction or rebuke. So many people are so afraid to, to get the help they need because get the help you need to be because there's a lost world all around us right in this very neighborhood. Become their solution. You've got what Jesus is saying. I want to take you to a place where you don't have theoretical answers, where you just say, we are the answer. Come live like we live. Come have the work. You want to see how a Christian works? Come to my job and see how I work. See how I make sales or whatever I do unto the glory of God. You want to see how someone's supposed to be educated? Come just pick my brain for a while. You want to see how someone's supposed to treat their wife and raise their kids and so forth? Come to our house. Be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. That's what the church is about bringing you to so that you can go to the gates of Hades and liberate the pagan worshipers. If you can't get liberated from pornography or whatever yourself then you can't liberate anyone else. God even allows you to struggle with various sins to kind of help you, push you toward him in the seeking of him because he's trying to say it's not normative for a Christian to be bound up 
by immature emotions or immature habits or addictions or fears or anything else. Get set free so that you can set others free. They're waiting for you and nobody else is coming. That's the gospel that I'm trying to take us through. I'm trying to help you understand. Jesus, I don't care if they have five kids out of wedlock, if they're drug addicts, if they're whatever. You could say they stole a lot of cars or killed a few people. I care, do we have what it takes to set them free inside of ourselves? Because I don't care what a person's problem is. Jesus can, is the bridge. He's the mediator. He's the solution. He's the one that said, I will build my church, and that church will knock down the gates of hell and liberate the captives therein. And that's what he was teaching the disciples there. Now, we have uh, other, there's, the next thing on your outline is other word pictures of the church. Um, those are all ones we talked about on Tuesday nights. A little plug for, I really, really, really think a bunch of you need to be at Tuesday nights that aren't coming to Tuesday nights. Really encourage you to come. Davion came for the first time, and we ended up having a guest speaker. <laughs> but uh, hopefully he'll keep coming back. Uh, Jesus is building in the Gospels. Jesus builds his covenant family. Now, covenants is an idea we don't have time to talk about. But it, families aren't just like, you know, today they say even like 65% of Christians live together before they get married. Well, because we don't understand covenant. All families have to be defined by covenants. You know, I remember when Ray Nethery and Ned Barubi first heard the intensity of some discussions that John and Jason and Catherine and Carla and Emily and I have, they were like, how can you guys have this intensity of disagreements to f and, find, and end up coming out with this wonderful, oh, this is great. We found the world of God, and, and we're so thankful for what John said here and what Jason said over here. And, and Carla, she rebuked me and told me I had to be on Facebook if I was going to pastor a church of 135-year-old people. And I was like, are you kidding me? Okay, I'll submit. And uh, <laughs> still trying to fight that one. But... Uh, <laughs> What a waste. But uh, <laughs> I guess I haven't embraced it in my heart that much. But, uh, you know, because you, when you have covenant, you can, you can do anything. And according to Joseph Hellerman's book, which I hope you've all read, When the Church Was a Family, he says that Jesus uses family metaphors for what a New Testament church is supposed to be more than any other thing. I hope we don't just call each other Brother Greg and so forth. I hope we live Brother Greg and so forth. And Sister Beth and Sister Leah and Sister Lynn back there. So, you know, we need to live it. Who have you had over your house lately? John 14, 2, a misinterpreted scripture. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the word oiko is the word for house, which we get oikonomics from, economics. And 
Mone means uh, places to, to, to reside. This is not about heaven, because in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is telling the disciples what their ongoing ministry was going to be. Thir- John 13 through 16 is the Passover supper. It's one of Jesus' last times to tell, and he tells them that they're to be servant leaders and wash one another's feet. Then he begins to tell them about the coming of the Holy Spirit and how he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to bring the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to bring into remembrance, and the Spirit's going to lead you into truth, and greater works than I do shall you do, and you're going to continue my mission. This is book, a verse about how it is to live with Christ on earth. This has nothing to do with heaven, as the modern popular escapist views to put everything in heaven. This has nothing to do with heaven. This has everything to do with if you get in God's family, there will be many places to contribute, belong, serve, and you will wake up and find, I belong to a family for the first time. I had a natural family, but it was pretty lousy. Now I've got a real family in the family of God, and it's pretty awesome. And people who keep going and coming and going and coming never find that. And people who stay aloof and just come on Sundays but don't get involved in community and get discipled never find that. But in my father's family, there's many places to belong, to give, to serve, to get corrected, to get encouraged, to get loved. If you need encouraged, just call John Gray. Uh, you know, there's many places to dwell. Now, Jesus built, I have to end, so I'm just going to say this. The rest of these verses and the rest of what I have here has to do with this. Jesus built the first community of Christians in his earthly ministry. That was, the mo- that was more important than maybe any other aspect of his earthly ministry. He built his church as a model for all the churches to come beside, behind it. Paul gets that so much that Paul uses family metaphors about the church more than all the other ones listed on this page that I've listed for you. Family is the number one metaphor for both Jesus and Paul, and families are tied by covenant, and families can fight, and families can encourage, and families can work together, and families were an economic unit in the, in the, old, in the old times. Because families should be about invading the culture, spiritually, emotionally, economically. We want to turn houses around in this neighborhood and turn neighborhoods around. Families are about changing the world around you for the glory of God.